Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Armchair Survivalist. My name is Kurt Wilson. I'm the Armchair Survivalist, and it is May the 2nd in the year 2021, and I hope you all made it through the communist holiday known as May Day. So if you go to armchairsurvivalist.com, that's my website for the show. You can scroll down to the bottom of any page and you'll see all the different ways to listen to me. I don't want to go through them all. But let's just say I'm on every podcast venue known to man. Uh, It'll show them all there. You can listen on satellite. You can uh, listen on your phone. There's a number you can dial. It's on the page. You'll see that. Now, if you miss any of the shows, there is a link on all my pages. says listen to the most current show. Click on it and you will. If you want to download any of the shows, you go to the little white and black nipper dog listening to the RCA Victor gramophone on the left-hand side of any of the pages and click on that, and then you'll see my archives. Now, you uh, also, I have a, a show notes page, and that's where I usually post all of the information that I've talked about. You can find that from the link show notes. Now, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be doing show notes because I can't do all of it myself. The problem is, is I'm a one-man band. I don't get paid for doing this, and I don't have any help doing this. So it takes too much time out of the day, which I have very little of. Because as if you haven't figured it out by now, everybody who's actually making a living has got to bust their ass to do so. And that's what I'm doing. Anyway, if you go to armchairsurvivalist.com, you'll find out all the neat stuff. You can also listen live every Sunday. You do that in the chat room. Okay, and the links are all there. Any questions you have pertaining how to listen or any other problems uh, pertaining to the uh, radio show, the bottom of the pages is my email address. Send me an email. I'll be more than happy to explain anything to you. All right, we're going to talk a little bit real fast about Survival Enterprises, my uh, business, at survivalenterprises.com, SE1, Samuel Edwards, the numeral one, SE1.us. Go there, poke around. You can see all the different stuff we have for sale. Some of the stuff I'm going to tell you about, we don't. I don't have it on the pages yet because I don't have time. We have ham radios in. Now, these are the handheld units. They are new. They're $50 or $75. And I'm telling you right now, if you want to be able to communicate when the Schumer hits the fan, this is the only way. So uh, the ham radios, $50, $75. You're going to have to call me on the phone. Uh, so I can explain it to you because we don't have them on the website yet. It's uh, the number here is three one zero two nine five nine six eight six. This is the the direct line to Survival Enterprises three one zero two nine five nine six eight six. You call that number, you can place orders, or you can ask questions. We'll be more than happy to chat with you on that. So we have the two uh, ham radios. one. We also have shortwave radios in. These are the Voyagers. This is where you can listen to the world. And these radios are unique because you can charge them by cranking the handle that's installed on them, by using the solar panel that's installed on them. You can use your own batteries. You can plug it in the wall. All of this stuff, right? AM, FM, shortwave, and the NOAA emergency weather band. All right. We also have Mountain House Buckets in. This is a, basically, it's a five-day supply of food. It's 30 servings in there. And these things, without a question, are going to store between 25 and 50 years, depending on how you store them. You throw them in the garage where it gets 160 degrees, eh, they might not last maybe 20 years. You put them in uh, downstairs where it's cool, 50 years or longer. And all you do is open a pouch, add boiling water, close the pouch, wait 15 minutes and eat. They're $150 shipped anywhere in the United States. Or if you come into the store here in uh, Hayden on Government Way, it's only $125. 
we charge $25 for shipping. Now, for you new listeners out there, I when I talk about the news, I have various categories that I use. I use the economy, health, food, liberal psychosis, Democrat perversion, criminal aliens, cancel culture, government threat, dimwit, uh, who is now in charge of the uh, shady rest in Washington, D.C., commie racism. Okay, so I have various categories. First category we're going to get into right now is the economy. Now, there's a there's something happening, and, and this was really brought to my attention. I called my brother up in uh, Nevada uh, yesterday, and he was talking to me about uh, the work he's got to do on his house. And I, I said, well, what's the holdup? He goes, you're not going to believe this. I, I've got to put subflooring in the bathroom. And when I figured out what I wanted to do, that subflooring was about $38 for a 4 by 8 sheet. It's now $95. What? I said, oh, didn't you know lumber is going up like crazy? Well, here's a little clip, and then I'm going to explain something to you. I stumbled on this uh, yesterday. It's amazing. A lumber yard. It's actually a depot. Train loads of lumber coming out of Canada, and they they offload here, and then they're transported by tractor trailer to different lumber yards. This lumber goes on for over a quarter of a mile, maybe uh, three eighths of a mile. I'm just astounded at how much lumber is here. And I'm wondering why there's such a problem at the lumber yards. We're still seeing the prices increase at the lumber yards, so I'm not sure why. Many years ago, I worked for my uh, brother-in-law at United Grocers Warehouse in Sacramento, California. This is the warehouse where all the mom-and-pop stores, 7-Elevens and, and that kind of thing, go to buy their goods that they're going to sell. So come Friday, we have uh, the typical shipment coming in from Crown Zeller back, uh, two 40-foot containers of toilet paper. My brother-in-law comes to me and he goes, look, that big bag, big uh, building in the back behind here, I want you to open, open it up and I want you to unload all the toilet paper in here and then lock the door and keep your mouth shut. You're not to talk to any customers about toilet paper at all. Okay, so we unloaded that. And then during the day, there was a dozen more of those trucks showed up. That building in the back was filled with toilet paper. I don't think nothing of it. I'm I'm just a typical drone doing what I'm told. At, and I was getting like, uh, I don't know, $3.65 an hour at the time. So I was in hog heaven. All right, come Monday, I show up at work and there's like 50 people standing outside waiting for the doors to open. My brother-in-law walks out before he opens the doors and he has this big A-frame sign and he sets it down and it says, toilet paper shortage, nothing available, sorry. I go in, we open up. And I say, Mike, what's going on? There's no shortage. He goes, shut up. Just we're, we, we can't keep selling toilet paper as cheap as we have been. We're going to have to raise it up. It's just ridiculous. People are going to pay it anyway. Because you know, there's two things that everybody does. And I go, what's that? He goes, well, they eat and, and then they... I said, oh, oh, wow, I get it. Okay. So for a week, didn't sell any toilet paper. And people were complaining and they couldn't, couldn't find any anywhere. And then finally, the next week, he put a sign out. said, toilet paper, $5 for four rolls. This was when you could go and buy a roll of toilet paper for a dime to a quarter, depending how plush you want. Yeah, so I was confused because I knew there was no shortage, but everybody fell for it. So they, they had created, whoever they are, they had created a shortage. And now to this day, you go and buy a pack of four rolls of toilet paper, uh, you're going to be paying $3 to $5 or more. Whereas... It shouldn't be that expensive because they don't cut down trees in the forest to make toilet paper. They have actual plantations of fast-growing uh, trees that they use. They harvest them every year, and they use these to make toilet paper. And these are all over the world. These 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 uh, plantations are all over the world. 
So it was fraud, 100%. And they used the same type of thing all through history, long before toilet paper and long after toilet paper. And now they're using the same fraud on lumber. They're claiming that there's a shortage of lumber. There's no shortage. They're actually hiding and holding the lumber in various places. And this guy found one of them. All right, now we got to go to the next part. Now, Walmart, and this is a sign of the times, and I'll tell you what it, what it shows. There's two things that it shows. Walmart is going to tap into the $32 billion secondhand clothing market. They're actually going to have sections in Walmart of used clothes. Now, the reason is, number one, people are too affluent in the United States. Not because they work their butts off and, and get a good job and have all kinds of money. It's because they end up with free money too much money, they have no goals in life, so they buy whatever they want, and then when they decide they don't need it anymore, they throw it away. I could make a damn good living if I went to the dump and just grabbed the stuff people were throwing away and then turned around and sold it. I'm not kidding. Walmart just decided they're going to start uh, cashing in on this, which is not hard to do. See, what they do is they... Um, they sell clothes, right? And when you take the, you buy something, take it home, you wash it, it doesn't fit, take it back. Well, now that's used. They can't sell it. Usually, they would send it back to the vendor, but the vendors are getting tired of that crap. So they're saying, look, that's a used piece of clothing. We don't want it back anymore. So Walmart is going to keep them, and they're going to be sending them to a main warehouse. I don't know where it's going to be, but it's going to be a main warehouse that's going to be sorted and retagged. You'll see it pretty soon, and I bet you within a couple months you're going to have it. Okay, now we're going to get into the uh, food and health department. We're going to do the health first. I, I have a theory that one of my listeners explained to me. And he said, look, here, here's the reality of it. Now, this guy is just, he's like one taco shy of a combination plate. Nice guy. Because I got a theory. I think that the U.S. government knows that there's going to be an invasion. And the invaders from space are going to release a disease. So what they're doing is forcing us, everybody in the world, to get a vaccination so that we can fight this disease that the invaders are going to release. Now, here's there's something else about these uh, this Pfizer vaccine. This little blurb popped up, so I want you to hear it. The Pfizer vaccine, which is causing newborn babies to die upon breastfeeding from the mother. So a day after receiving the second dose of the vaccine, the baby developed a rash within 24 hours, was inconsolable, refusing to eat, developed a fever, and the baby died. So ask yourself if a 99.96% survival rate taking a vaccine for it is worth the death of your newborn baby that you carried inside of your stomach for nine months. All right, and I, that's bad enough. Uh, how stupid, how imbecilic. Can a female be to get a shot, any shot, I don't care what it is, even if it's a mumps shot while you're pregnant or when you're breastfeeding your baby, how arrogantly stupid can these people be? And if you think that's bad, I watched on CNN a group of about 30 women who had newborn babies who were going to volunteer to test the vaccine on their newborn children up to the age of two. Do you really think that the newspaper is going to come out and say, yep, half of them just died? You probably aren't going to hear anything about it whatsoever. This is disgusting, and people are so stupid, it's, it's asinine. You know, I've said this before, and I've, I've said it to many people many times. Stupid is totally okay as long as it's in your universe and doesn't affect anyone else. But when your, your actions affect children or animals, I'm going to step in. Now, I can't step in with this because these people are... There's no one around here. Nobody up here in this area is going to be that damn stupid. I can't believe it. Just, I'm sorry. It just, 
You know, you, you, you affect yourself, fine. But when you affect children who, who can't defend themselves, that is evil. That is pure evil. Ten, next time somebody says anything about this social distancing crap, all of the tests, all of the studies, including MIT, has decided that, look, whether you're six feet, three feet, or 100 feet, it doesn't make a damn bit of difference. No, no disease is going to spread that way. So this whole social distancing thing is nothing but pure Bolshevik. Anyway, so you know India uh, has skyrocketed. Uh, the, the diseases in, in India, the COVID-19, uh, people getting sick from it, is skyrocketed. We're talking a quarter million minimum a day are getting sick and people are dying. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, in September, there was a big push in India to give uh, uh, a, a drug, ivermectin, to all of the citizens in, the, in India. So they pushed hard. Well, the statistics of sicknesses started dropping fast because it was keeping people from being sick. And then middle of January, they started to vaccinate them. By February, the deaths had skyrocketed and going straight up. So the deaths in India started when they brought in the vaccinations. Apparently, there's not enough people dying for the communists in the world. So Dimwit, you know who I'm talking about, has decided that just because we are not going to use the AstraZeneca uh, shot here in the United States because it doesn't even qualify as uh, as a vaccination <laughs> by the FDA. So he's going to send AstraZeneca to India. So as soon as that gets there, you give it about a week and you're going to see more and more deaths going like crazy. And of course, the communists cannot put two and two together. Not, they never will. Only people with some intelligence are going to look and say, you know what, as soon as you started giving shots to all these people, they started dying faster. And instead of just a quarter million people a day getting sick, you're going to see a quarter million people a day dying in India, which is their plan. They need to kill as many people worldwide as possible. There's an article that came out. Now, I told you when I was talking about Walmart how people just throw stuff away. Well, somebody goes to the dump and he sees in the dump, and this is in Miami-Dade, he sees thousands of boxes, and these boxes have ventilators in them. Remember those things that uh, everybody was touting how that's what's going to save us, is having all these ventilators? Well, they, they threw them away because they weren't on the approved list from the FDA. They're exact duplicates of everything that's out there, except when they were imported, they were not on the, the approved list. So they just took them to the dump and threw them out. That's, that's what government does. That's how governments kill you. But Dimwit has decided that the best way, the best way to help the black race right now is something he can do. It's not a problem. He can get it done. He's going to ban menthol cigarettes. Ban menthol cigarettes. 80% of all black smokers smoke menthol cigarettes. So who is this going to affect? It's going to affect the blacks. I hope you blacks out there that voted for these dimwits that are now in charge of the United States, I hope you keep voting for them because... The sign of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And you keep putting these communists in power, and then you wonder why bad crap keeps happening to you. Well, let's see what you feel uh, after you can't get menthol cigarettes anymore. Except on the black market, of course. All right, now we're going to get into the food section. <laughs> you know Nathan's famous hot dogs? Nathan's famous hot dogs? You ever had them? You ever had those things? Or beef they taste excellent. Well, 
Nathan is going to be trying out plant-based hot dogs now. Now, here's the thing that gets me. You go into Costco and you have beef hamburgers, right? You get a box of them. Or mushroom hamburgers. Or soy burgers. Or whatever the hell you want to call them. They're not any cheaper than the, than the beef ones. In fact, sometimes they're more expensive. You remember, now, th- th- this is an aside to this, but I remember years and years ago, there was, there was none of this ground turkey meat or ground chicken meat. There was ground beef. And then somebody said, why not grind up some turkey meat? So they did. And when they first come out with this turkey meat, nobody wanted it. Hamburger was uh, like a dollar a pound. The turkey stuff comes out and it's like a dollar fifty a pound. Nobody's going to buy that crap. So they marked it down to uh, 77 cents a pound. And people said, well, what the hell? You know, we'll buy it. And then over the years, the price has gone up, gone back to where it is. Same thing's happening with this this uh, soy-based food stuff, this synthetic food stuff. Anyway, so Nathan's is going to try it now. And we'll see what happens with that. You know the uh, the sound you hear uh, whenever uh, Dimwit does a speech? Let me, let me refresh it in your memory here. Well, that could very well be the sound you hear the next time you go out to the feedlot. You know, it used to be, I'm going to go get uh, some beef, right? I want a steak. And uh, in your mind, you'd hear the cattle rustling and mooing and all of that. Now you're going to be, now you're going to be hearing the crickets chirping. There are about 15 million crickets in this room. Here, they'll live out their lives freely until they're transformed into food. The purpose of the condos is to give the crickets somewhere to live. And so generally they are resting inside the condos. They'll come up, have a drink of water, have some food, and then go back down to rest again. It's difficult to perceive how many crickets are actually in a room like this because, of course, they were all living inside their happy little condos. We just take the condo, give it a bang, and all the crickets come out. Most of these crickets will be milled into a powder. That can be used like flour. Or you can snack on them whole like chips. This one is barbecue flavored. Though you may be thinking this is a strange choice for food. Crickets actually contain more protein than beef without any of the environmental damage. A lot of manufacturers and entrepreneurs were looking for safer, more sustainable protein sources to add to their product. And for us, it's been quite a boon to our business as a result. We went inside Canada's Entomo Farms to see how they turn crickets from bugs to brunch. For most of us, crickets are just the soundtrack of our summer nights. But Darren Golden and his brothers thought they could be used to create a new source of sustainable and nutritious food. Just reimagining how we can feed a population of 9 or 10 billion people on an overcrowded planet. Now they harvest about 50 million crickets a week, and they're aiming to triple production within the year. The trickiest thing is that there's no real manual. In terms of this kind of scale and density, there's no manual. It's figured out as you go. Nobody's ever done free-range crickets cricket farming on this kind of a scale before. It all starts here where the crew covers boards with a mixture of damp soil and peat moss. Making mud pies. And the pregnant females flock to lay their eggs. It may look like just dirt and some grains of rice, but actually... There's probably thousands and thousands of cricket eggs in there. And in this room, about 15 million eggs. Of the 900 different species Darren could choose from, he chose the tropical house cricket because of its simple feed requirements. It's a cricket that does well in high densities, grows really fast, and is a super delicious cricket. Every single part of this cricket is edible. Plus, they have nutrients like fiber, iron, and calcium. After roughly nine days, the eggs hatch, and they'll hang in the nursery for about two weeks. Crickets definitely require a nice water warm environment, being cold-blooded animals, their metabolism is controlled by temperature. So if you keep them on the warmer end of their preferred temperature, 
they grow faster. And then once they're big enough and ready to handle life in the big grow room, then we transfer them from the nursery into the grow room. It only takes a crew of five to maintain this colony of millions. The crickets here eat a mixture of corn, soy, and some flax. On average, the crickets die on almost a thousand pounds of feet a day. That's often staggering for people because you think of crickets as such tiny little animals. But of course, when you got 10 or 15 million of them, they consume a fair amount of feed. To put it in human terms, 15 million crickets is nearly twice the population of New York City. But growing all these crickets is still more sustainable than farming pigs, poultry, or cattle. To produce just one kilogram of cow meat takes a staggering 22,000 liters of water. And to produce that same amount of protein from a cricket, only a few hundred liters. Growing crickets also has other advantages. So one of the interesting things about insects is that there's very, very few diseases that are transferable from insects to humans, which is very different from farming mammals or chickens. And crickets do not have any known viruses or the species that we produce has no known viruses that can affect them. And of course, certainly no zoonotic viruses or viruses that can cross species. The three entomop barns can produce 9,000 pounds of protein a week enough to fill the daily protein requirements of about 80,000 people. By and large, most of our customers are either integrating it into a finished good, like a dog kibble, a dog treat, or selling it as cricket powder under a different brand, or putting it in something like a superfood smoothie mix, baking it into other baked goods and other snacks. Even their poop is a usable product. And as you can see, the floor is covered with cricket manure. It's called frass, and it's a great fertilizer. The farm can produce about 6,000 pounds of manure per harvest. These crickets will live out their full lifespan before they're turned into food. So from the time an uh, egg hatches to harvest is about six weeks. The big difference is that at six weeks, a cricket is fully mature. It's lived out its life. It's bred and laid eggs for us. And essentially, it would be dying within a few days anyway. And now it's time to see them turned into food. So this is our raw receiving room. All of the crickets come in from the farm. The insects are rinsed, then sorted to make sure there's no debris from the farm in the mix. Next, they're evenly spread onto trays and slipped into ovens to roast. So in order to make the powder, the moisture has to be below a certain percentage. We find that if it's above that percentage, it's really difficult to grind it. While some are left whole and sent for seasoning and packaging, the majority will go into this industrial grinder until they look like coffee. It's then manually packed into boxes of 25 pounds each. Every day they turn 15,000 crickets into 500 pounds of powder. The secret sauce is really in the metrics. It's in exactly how your setup is done, your ratio of eggs, surface area of feed, and it's, it's kind of like a big giant recipe and everything does have to be perfect for it to function the way that we function. But there's still room for improvement. Right now the process at Entomo is mostly manual, and that needs to change if they want to ramp up production. And so we're looking at more automated solutions, which will allow us to actually produce three to four times what we are capable of doing now. Entomo Farms hopes this will also help bring costs down and make their products more affordable. Cricket flour sells for roughly $12 for every four ounces, which is 45 times the price of all-purpose flour. But it's not really the price that's holding back some customers. Perception in North America around insect as food is certainly a challenge, and it's one that we are striving to rise up against. In Asia, cricket's already a popular food. And Darren is confident the appetite for crickets is only going to grow. Super exciting thing about insect farming is scale up is super fast. Each cricket lays 600 eggs or so. And so in a crisis event, if we needed to scale up our production, we can do it really, really fast. A few years ago, I did an article about a Las Vegas casino and a hotel that was experimenting with 
a specialized sewage system that had sensors in it that could read uh, what if there were any drugs coming down through the sewer pipes. And they could track them back up to specific individual rooms. And that, that, was, uh, that was deemed very invasive. Well, now, how would you feel if you found out that somebody, the powers that be, a government agent, law enforcement, your wife, your husband, who knows, will know exactly what you ate because they can now track that. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce a company called Anika, a biotechnology startup which has recently introduced their flagship product, a genetically modified probiotic spore that can be, as we read here, misted onto dry goods or added to liquid products. And these GMO spores are tagged with a digital ID that you can trace back using blockchain or any other technology to whatever you want. So we're now this is a method of providing a unique ID to anything any piece of, as you can see here, any apple, any piece of food, or really anything across any supply chain so that we can integrate that with our AI plus blockchain supply chain that we're creating in our fourth industrial revolution here. So the bottom line about this this technology that I want to share with you, and we'll hear from one of their founders here in a second, is that they make the case that this is, of course, edible and tasteless, and they claim safe. And that really underscores the fact that these guys are creating a GMO microbe barcode that they intend to implant in any food product before it goes off into the shipping for grocery stores, then into your stomach, and ultimately into the smart sewers that will attract these products in your gut even using these GMO spores that survive all of those processes. Can we hear a little bit about how Anika is changing the security of the supply chains uh, as the world becomes more and more global. So sort of on a high level, what we do is we use microbes as tracking devices. So what we do is we convert data, digital data, into strands of DNA. We insert that little bit of DNA into a microorganism, a probiotic microorganism, to be honest. And then we can sort of apply that organism and sort of uh, have it hitch a ride on any food or agricultural product or, or really anything through the supply chain. The reason we use a microbe to do it is because we engineer it to go into a spore. So a dormant state that allows it to be impervious to high temperatures and UV light, sort of protect that DNA barcode through transit. And so why this is important is because you can spray romaine lettuce, for example, and you can mix it around and wash it and treat it, uh, microwave it. You can have it decay for a month and we can still re-identify sort of each leaf back to its origin. And, and you mentioned that it's a probiotic and you use lettuce as your example. So is this something that you imagine is going to be mostly used in food supply chains? I could see that being extraordinarily useful, but perhaps you can even branch out into non-edible things. Yeah, so, so we've worked with the beers uh, on diamond We've gotten inquiries about tagging explosives. Picture a big mining company whose explosives end up in a, in a civil war. We, we've heard everything, both organic and non-organic, in terms of applications. Um, we're just focusing this year particularly on romaine lettuce because of, of customer demand. But the applications are actually just really endless in terms of how you could apply this to, to a number of different things. Now, before we go any further, I want to point out this talk that we're watching is part of a demonstration day hosted by SOSV, a venture capital firm who invests 
quite a bit into, as we can see from their portfolio companies here, uh, replacement agriculture, cell cultured meats and other uh, synthetic foods. Just taking a quick look here, Memphis Meats is obviously one of the popularly consumed fake meat burgers out there. We're developing a way to produce real meat without the need for animals. So meat without the animals. They have Finless Food is another portfolio company that SOSV has funded. Delicious seafood without the catch, without the fish, right? So meat without animals, fish without fish. Heels Gel Tour is another one. We make gelatin without the animal. And I also wanted to note, we create things that are critical to the post-animal economy. So SOSV portfolio companies are openly working on constructing a post-animal economy. Even as the media today is running point for Joe Biden saying, no, he doesn't want to take away your cows. Meanwhile, billionaires and venture capitalists are all and startup companies are all funding and working on projects to create and a world without animal agriculture, right? We've talked about that a lot. Notco in Chile is another company that SOSV has funded in combination with Biz Stone, one of the Twitter co-founders, and Jeff Bezos. So again, these billionaires are all all in on uh, creating meat from animal cells instead of animal slaughter. This is New Age Meats, yet another portfolio company. Briefly, Novo Nutrients creates food from waste carbon dioxide, turning it into protein for aquaculture. And of course, Sugar Logics recreating the best kept secret in human breast milk because even breast milk is dirty and antiquated in the post-animal economy. As a matter of fact, another of their portfolio companies is a human tissue printing and pharmaceutical development company. Just like the World Economic Forum promises us, you'll own nothing but be happy anyway by the year 2030 and we'll be 3D printing human tissues. Yeah, SOSV is working on that part of it as well. But it is Annika that really ties together this entire portfolio, tracking and tracing all goods across the supply chain. Let's go back to this founder because he's about to tell us how they can apply this technology to fresh foods without getting the EPA involved. In the lettuce, for example, it's actually post-harvest and it's mixed with the wash water. So it's actually not touching in the field. I see. There's one reason the EPA is not involved. And that's basically the case. A lot of it is, it doesn't really need to be at the field, but just post-harvest or post-mining or whatever it is. So that's usually how it's added in. Can you use these to verify that these products have been ethically sourced? I imagine it depends on who your customer is, but... Uh, we actually... Exactly. So in cacao and coffee, this is a big issue, especially in Europe and the United States where like ethical sourcing is legislated pretty much. We've done things like... This is one of the coolest demos, which was we took coffee beans, roasted them, brewed cups of coffee, and then like traced them back to the origin to show that these were ethically sourced cups of coffee and these weren't. In coffee in particular, I think there's like 22 different certifications that they need. You can embed those, so to speak, in these tags, you know, the authenticity. When you did the coffee experiment, did you tag the did you tag the beans before you roasted them? Before we roasted. Oh wow, that's amazing. It, it, what's amazing is that the, the spores that we use are just they cling to organic matter really well. I mean, especially grasses. That's why they're really good in things like leafy greens. And that's just a that's just a property of this. And so one of the things that actually, to go back to the, the earlier question, Julie, was I remember sitting in that class and someone started talking about spores or at GenSpace. Someone was complaining about spores, actually, and about how hardy they were and how, like, there's such a pain to get rid of. And I was like, huh, that's interesting, because I was like, that could be, that would be the perfect way to protect 
any sort of tag. So now we start to get a sense of why this is such a big deal to tag a bean when it's harvested that then gets roasted and then gets made into a cup of coffee and then take that cup of coffee and be able to trace it back to the field it came from. It's a pretty stunning set of processes for a tag to be able to, for a barcode, right, to be able to survive. So the next question, what happens if you eat it? Just quickly, have you sent spores through the digestive systems of any animals? It's a big area of interest that we're currently working on. And again, I don't know if I can say more about it, but there's a huge need for that. Because if you think about linking, just in a contamination, you go in, you're sick, linking the, 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 the sample, the human sample to the actual outbreak and the location would basically truncate the time of a recall investigation from like three months to like an hour. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, it's like so raw that I don't know what I can say. But the bigger prediction is on GMOs. So I think that the world is going to have to sort of change its stance on genetically modified organisms because of climate change. I, I think that the, the, it would shift it so anti-GMO sort of illogically because of things like Monsanto and sort of miscommunication around that. And now I think it's going to, and you're already seeing it with things like the Impossible Burger, like, I think consumers are now starting to put ESG and environmental friendliness and climate change above just a blanket. We don't like GMOs. And I think that's going to be a major tailwind for, you know, our whole industry and our sector and specifically our business. I think this will happen in the next five years or 10 years. But I think if, you know, we're going to protect our crops and, and, and really like take on climate change head on, the way to do it is through GMOs. And I think that as a technology is just going to be, again, inevitable and something that everyone's going to have to embrace. And, and I think it's going to happen over the next decade. Yeah, so we kind of flubbed the non-answer to whether or not they were doing animal testing of these GMO spore barcodes. But don't worry, if, if something happens on stage, just yell climate change and run. And that's exactly what he did. We're going to have to change our stance on GMOs because of global warming. Just the appeal to that one carte blanche for all the mad scientist experiments from the David Keith geoengineering at Scopex at Harvard to edible spores that track food from the lettuce in the washroom so the epa isn't involved you see how devious they are it's not even <laughs> it's not even conceived as a we're from the government we're here to help it's here's how we got around the regulators so we can get these gmo spores in your body and track everything you do because that's what we're doing is building a perfect surveillance state for the post-human and openly post-animal economy getting this glimpse into these conversations these highly funded conversations that are going on uh, and these technologies that are being developed and tested right now there is as you heard these they're basically indestructible gmo spores that are digitally tagged with whatever arbitrary dna they need to be uh to track things through a supply chain or anything else and this is just one of the companies that's working on that there are others like we've heard about phylogen who is using the microbiome on uh, microscopic dust so you could say without even tagging things with gmo crazy spores you can just say look this piece of lettuce happens to have the exact same profile of you know yeasts and micro other things that are in the microbiome as happens to be in Nevada. We just we just happen to know in our database that this leaf came from Nevada because it looks like everything else. It's got the same dust on it. And that's a World Economic Forum portfolio company. So this is a, a set. It's not even just one company that's out there doing it. It's a set of companies all working. There's the fingerprint to let you know that they're all working on being able to, as is the goal of Agenda 2030, completely track and trace all resources and economic activity across planet Earth. It's not 
some boilerplate text. It's not a mission statement. It is an agenda, and they are executing it now. My last article in this section is going to be about India again. India biometric ID system has led people to starve. India doesn't have a social security number. So instead, uh, they wanted to have uh, some kind of a way to, for people to identify themselves. So they're coming out with the biometric stuff. Finger, fingerprints, eye, iris reads, and then you have to have these little cards and such. And Well, the problem is, is that there's so many poor people there, they can't get these cards. And let's say you, you're going to get fed. The poor people don't you know, take their money and go to the store and buy food. Generally, what they do is they go stand in line to get food so they can take it home. And when you get up to your line and, and you're up in the front of the line and you're, they ask for your biometric ID. And if you don't have one, they send you home. So we can't do anything because you don't have an ID. So thousands and thousands of people are dying because they literally don't have an ID and they aren't going to be, the government's not going to feed them because of that. Sorry, you don't have an ID, we can't feed you. This is exactly where they want us everywhere in the United States, everywhere in the world. They want us to have a specialized ID. As a matter of fact, they call it the star ID, uh, universal ID, where the government swore to God they'd never have a universal ID in the United States, and now here it am. And if you want to get fed, you better have it. All right, now we're going to get into the liberal psychosis. Saw this article in Psychology Today. And over 50% of these white communist females have been diagnosed with a mental problem. They have a mental health problem. Michael Savage said, liberalism is a genetic disease, and it seems that they're taking this to the nth degree now. But this is true. This is real. This is over 50% of them. Personally, I think it's uh, exactly 100% of these white communist females uh, have a mental problem. We have a, another problem with these communists. Is our There, there are teachers, right? There are, there are teachers in our schools, in the kindergartens, in the colleges. And as a matter of fact, there was an intercept of a Zoom, uh, a Zoom meeting of a bunch of these communist professors meeting and talking about stuff. It comes right out and slaps you in the face. You've you got to hear this. Hey, Gina, are you teaching at Roosevelt this semester? Yes, Ralph, I am. Great. What are you teaching? I'm teaching middle school um, theory and practice, basically. Excellent. I'm I'm so glad you're there too. You fit in so well with their, you know, the university's philosophy and mission, right? I mean, it's all social justice all day, every day. I get to talk about all the things I love all the time. All day, every day. All day, all day in the day gig. All all night in my night classes. When I'm here, like I mean, really, I'm living the life over here. Yeah, I always flip out the kids that take my master's class on fiscal policy and public budgets when the first. Three or four classes are devoted to philosophy of social justice and how you organize society. We don't talk about one, you know, budgetary item. They're like, oh, man, Professor Martiri, this is a really weird way to teach a budget. You know, it's part of everything, right? If you don't understand your values, you can't allocate resources among public priorities that are scarce but all needed. Um, just so you guys know, you're on the you're on the mic in the auditorium. So what the guy's saying is that, well, I guess we never knew that this about you. <laughs> you just told everybody about it now, and yeah, they they all know anyway. But the problem is with with teachers like that, uh, you end up getting uh, uh, students who uh, graduate and then uh, become politicians like this. The thing I want us all to be aware of is that that modern science obviously recognizes that there are many more than two biological sexes. In fact, there are six. 
So this is a obviously a communist uh, representative because he thinks that there are actual six 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 uh, sexes, and he obviously was a was a product of the public school system and the socialist communist professors that taught him. There was a um, there was a kid who kid he's about twenty years old. Uh, he did a, a lecture on the police via Skype. His professor chastised him for calling them heroes the issue is systemic because the whole reason we have police departments in the first place where did it stem from what's our history going back to what jeremy was talking about what where was what does it stem from it stems from people in the south wanting to capture runaway slaves this is the kind of people we have in the united states in every state in every school not some schools. And if you think just because you have a private school or a charter school or a Catholic school or a Christian school, it's anything different? No, it's not. You have psychopaths in every school. They purposely go to schools. They purposely become teachers. Let me, let me explain to you what, what uh, psychopathy is. Uh, this is directly from Psychology Today. Psychopathy is a spectrum disorder and can be diagnosed using the 20-item psychopathy checklist. And this is a group of things that you that uh, w- the psychopaths would exhibit. All right? Glibness or superficial charm. These are phonies. Grandois sense of self-worth. Need for stimulation, proneness to boredom. Psychological or pathological lying. Manipulative. Lack of remorse or guilt. This is the big one. Psychopaths have no guilt because they're never responsible for anything. No matter what they do, they tell you it's somebody else's fault. Reduced emotional responses, lack of empathy, parasitic lifestyle, poor behavioral controls, promiscuous sexual behavior, early behavioral problems, lack of realistic long-term goals. Like, when I grow up, I want to be a spaceman or the president. Well, I mean, sure, anybody can be one, but this is lack of realistic. Like, I had a friend in, in uh, college. He could not add 2 plus 2 plus 2. He'd get confused on that. Yet he wanted to teach geometry. Okay. Irresponsibility. Failure to accept responsibility. Short-term marital relationships. Juvenile delinquency. Willing to commit diverse types of crimes over and over again. This is what a psychopath is. These psychopaths exploit many different things so that they can gain control of you and or your children. Last September, a professor of African studies at George Washington University, Jessica Krug, admitted to faking African and Latina heritage for her entire adult life. She was apparently about to be outed as a race faker and decided to get ahead of the news by admitting that she was, quote, a culture leech. According to friends, Krug was militant and aggressive about her stances against systemic racism, going so far as to pick fights in public with other white women and expecting her black friends to back her up. Clearly, Krug thought that by identifying as black, this allowed her to claim the moral high ground from all those white devils and lend her more expertise and street cred in her career as an African studies professor. Rachel Dolezal, famously outed after years of pretending to be black, also benefited from her fake identity. She was the head of a NAACP chapter. And who could forget Senator Elizabeth Warren, who was listed as a minority professor at Harvard for years because she thought her high cheekbones made her a native 
Native American. She was later hilariously trolled by Trump, who convinced her to take a DNA test, which she actually bragged about, saying it confirmed that she is, at most, 164th Native American. This really isn't a hard phenomenon to figure out. The more you give certain groups in society special rights and privileges, from the moral high ground to salaries and jobs, the more this will bring the worst type of people out of the woodwork to take advantage. In the context of two recent studies, it all makes perfect sense. Here, the science confirms what we intuitively know, that bad people take advantage of other people's best intentions to gain power. You've probably heard of virtue signaling, when somebody tries to show how morally superior they are because of some cause that they claim to care about. For example, the Instagram influencers caught staging photos of them helping to clean up after a riot, or a company that tweets out support for gay rights only during Pride Month. They are signaling that they are virtuous, and thus reaping the material and social rewards of being part of the woke crowd. But this new research indicates that these social justice warriors might not be so well-intentioned. The Journal of Personality and Social Psychology recently published a paper which analyzed the results of a number of studies on victimhood and virtue signaling. The paper is called Signaling Virtuous Victimhood as Indicators of Dark Triad Personalities. The dark triad personalities are narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. The study found that individuals with these traits are more likely to signal virtuousness and victimhood. That means psychopaths, narcissists, and shrewd opportunists take advantage of the social climate for their own gain. And it's not just sympathy or social status that they gain. The benefits of virtue signaling include real, tangible gains in resources, as evidenced by the three white posers that we discussed. That's because the U.S. is now an environment in which it is, according to the study, increasingly advantageous and even fashionable to be considered a victim. It is also used as a way to gain moral immunity for deceit, intimidation, or even violence by alleged victims to achieve their goals. In other words, the ends justify the means. As long as you claim to have a noble intention, it can excuse any amount of terrible behavior in the name of that goal. And that is why Black Lives Matter embeds its admittedly Marxist goals in the vehicle of racial justice. Signaling support for disenfranchised groups is a shortcut to get ahead in today's world. This obviously doesn't mean that every woe person is a psychopath. Some of them surely have the best intentions. But this study confirms that when society gives some people special rights and privileges, bad people will always take advantage of it. Coupled with another study that was released a couple years back, we can understand perfectly the woke threat coming out of the belly of the beast, Washington, D.C. The study, called Psychopathy by State, found that the concentration of psychopaths in Washington, D.C. was far higher than any other state. The presence of psychopaths in the District of Columbia is consistent with the conjecture that psychopaths are likely to be effective in the political sphere. Psychos are drawn to power, and it's not just that power corrupts. It's that already corrupt people seek power. Government is just the best industry to be in for somebody with no morals. The study surveyed samples from the lower 48 states and Washington, D.C. to find the prevalence of personality traits which correspond with psychopath. Of course, D.C. came in first by far. But as the author notes, that's not necessarily a fair comparison because Washington, D.C. is a city compared to entire states. The study finds that more urban areas in general correspond to more psychopathic personality traits. 
Another interesting finding is that a higher prevalence of lawyers predicts higher psychopathy levels. Shocking, I know. So, we're moving DC. Can you guess which three states come in the top places for the concentration of psychopaths? Number one, Connecticut. Number two, California. Number three, New Jersey. The least psychopathic states are number one, West Virginia. Number two, Vermont. Number three, Tennessee. Number four, North Carolina. And number five, New Mexico. And it should not be surprising that the main correlation was the state with the lowest percentage of people living in urban areas also had the lowest concentration of psychopaths. Perhaps psychopaths need to be around more victims or constantly switch out their friends and acquaintances as they become aware of their antisocial behavior. It's possible that psychopaths are more easily recognized and ostracized in more tight-knit rural communities. The study concludes, areas of the United States that are measured to be the most psychopathic are those in the Northeast and other similarly populated regions. The least psychopathic are predominantly rural areas. The District of Columbia is measured to be far more psychopathic than any individual state in the country, a fact that can be readily explained either by its very high population density or by the type of person who may be drawn to a literal seat of power. Hailing originally from Massachusetts, I can attest to the highest corresponding personality trait being temperamental and uninhibited. Where do you think the term masshole came from? If you aren't a psychopath when you arrive in the state, you soon become one just from the traffic alone. And I wonder if just being in such close proximity to other people makes it a necessary adaptation to care a little bit less about how your actions affect other people. The solution to all of this is to not give a single inch to these virtue signaling psychopaths. Don't engage them. Don't fall into their traps. Don't apologize for being white, Christian, straight, privileged, or whatever. That's a race to the bottom. And the best thing that we can do is either entirely ignore these virtue signaling psychopaths or relentlessly make fun of them with memes. What you don't want to do is go in the other direction and become the self-fulfilling prophecy by actually becoming racist. Remember, this is a small group of fringe people trying to force everybody else to self-segregate or identify with a victim group. Just keep in mind that this narrative is being driven by elitist white liberals, some of whom go so far as to fake being a victim themselves. Now, for those of you who, who want to uh, become a victim, who who want to do it right the first time, our resident comedian has uh, some ideas for you. It's important to be an empowered individual. A life worth living is a life where you stand in your personal power and sovereignty. By taking another step to grow and empower yourself every day. And we're here because we want to help empower you. We want to help. We want to help you embrace personal power the only way that's socially acceptable today. By victimizing yourself. We want to help you victimize yourself so that you too can be an empowered individual. Some people aren't hurt by others, but they want to be. That's why you need to victimize yourself. Feeling significant because you made yourself into a victim is a lot easier than feeling significant because you did something significant. The more significant you feel, the more power you feel. And the more victim you are, the more significant you feel. Which makes you feel more powerful. We as a society need more self-made victims. And you can be more of a victim than you ever thought possible. You just have to believe. We're here to help. Just listen. To victimize yourself, find someone else to blame for how you make yourself feel. Tell them why it's their fault. Everything about you and your life is their fault. And they need to know that. Your feelings are their fault because they're yours. They might have trouble understanding why it's their fault. Typical abuser. That's of course because they don't care about you. If they cared, 
they would already know what they did to you in your mind. How could they? <laughs> but because they probably won't understand, explain it to them in simple terms by getting rageful. The angrier you get and the louder you scream, the more wrong they are. That way, they'll understand that the scope of pain you're causing yourself is their fault. The more pain you have, the more significant you feel. That's convenient. Victimize yourself even further by canceling them. Canceling people is one of the most loving ways to victimize yourself. Canceling a whole group is even better. Ruin their lives because your life already feels ruined. Hate them and hurt them because you hurt inside. As you cancel them, now is the time to virtue signal. Do this by accusing them of being something horrible. This will set up a manipulative psychological trick where you plant yourself to be the opposite of that horrible something. Which is always something virtuous. So it could sound like, you're hateful, you're uninclusive, you're racist. Virtue signaling! And don't worry, it doesn't matter if they're not racist. This isn't about them, this is about you. And you're about hurting others for your gain of a heightened degree of significance. But always remember to virtue signal, that's really important. That way. People won't see what you're really doing. Abusing others to position yourself as the victim. So always virtue signal. And we can't do it alone. We need to band together with other people who victimize themselves. Form a group to cancel people. Form a culture. Call it cancel culture if you want. Because if there's one thing that's more empowering than disempowering yourself and blaming someone else for it. It's being in a whole community of people who try to empower themselves by disempowering themselves and blaming other people for it. We all need to band together with people who attack others others in order to victimize themselves. Just like how cancer cells are more empowered when they band together and attack the body, you are too. It pays to victimize yourself. It feels good. But the hard part of victimizing yourself is no one can do it to you other than you. That's why we're here to help you. So you can be better at making yourself feel worse so you can feel better about yourself when you attack someone else. It's hard. So hard. Why can't someone else do it for you? Socialism would help you with this. Self-responsibility? It's more like toxic responsibility. The world needs less self-responsibility and more safe space for people to be un-self-responsible. Start today. Victimize yourself. Blame someone else. Feel significant. Repeat often. By victimizing yourself, you're not only empowering yourself, you're helping create a better world. We're now going into government threat. So... I got a, uh, a briefing from the Department of Homeland Security this morning. They're beginning an internal investigation to identify dangerous employees. Uh, in other words, Republicans, patriots, white people, Christians. Remember, the guy in charge of the Department of Homeland Security is anti-white, anti-Republican, uh, anti-male. I mean, he's, he's everything pro-communist. It is a disgusting thing that he even exists by the way, Montana just signed into law a bill to nullify all communist gun control laws coming from Dimwit. That's one good thing about Montana. The, the bad thing is, is the idiots there keep voting Democrats in. That's first-time gun buyers. Do you know somebody who says, I've never bought a gun before, but I think I should. Every month, every month for the past three or four years, it registers into the millions. First-time gun buyers. Let me read you from the article. FBI data. See, when you buy a gun from a dealer. Now, we're only talking when they buy from a gun dealer. Somebody who's licensed has to perform a, a NICS check. 
And this is a background check. You pick up a telephone, you fill out a yellow sheet, you hand it to the clerk, he picks up a telephone, calls the FBI and gives them some basic information and they say yay or nay. Okay, so FBI data shows that six of the top 10 days for instant background checks, which are required by the federal government before a licensed firearm retailer can sell a gun, were last month alone. Six of the top 10 days. The week of March 15th through the 21st, they did over 1.2 million firearm checks. 1.2 million. Yeah, the Democrats are afraid of us. My viewpoint is, they better be. Yep, you got it right. We're under the category Dimwit the Puppet, who who now resides at Shady Acres in Washington, D.C. So he did a a speech to to a Congress, and I I watched it. Almost everything he said was a lie. It was astounding. Almost everything he said was a lie. It worked like this, if I could just surmise it. Lie, lie, lie. I'm a commie, and I'm going to make you a commie. Lie, lie, lie. I mean, this is astounding, the whole speech. It was, oh, he claimed that he would inherited the worst economy since the Great Depression. And I'm like, what? Of course, that was fact-checked, and he was right. See, Dimwit put a transvestite in charge. This is ridiculous. This guy is a, he's a very, very disgusting creature. He puts a transvestite in the Pentagon. Now, the vice president, uh, the female, whatever her name is, uh, she's a, she has decided, and she's working with, with uh, the president of Mexico, uh, that she's going to uh, grant citizenship to Mexican citizens if they plant trees in Mexico. And everybody was just as confused as I am. Uh, so uh, a reporter from Fox News asked her uh, the question, why would you, how, how can you give citizenship to uh, a Mexican just for planting trees? And her response was this standard, typical response that she gives any reporter that asks any question that has any substance to it. <laughs> I'll take them. I'll okay, take them. I'll go. <laughs> Stage, but yeah. <laughs> no. Now we're going into the uh, category of communist racism. Uh, Chris Rock has decided to do a public service announcement uh, and to teach uh, his uh, fellow blacks something that they haven't learned yet, apparently. People in the black community, myself, often worry that we might be a victim of police brutality. So as a public service, the Chris Rock Show proudly presents this educational video. Have you ever been face to face with a police officer and wondered, is he about to kick my ass? Well, wonder no more. If you follow these easy tips, you'll be fine. First, obey the law. Laws were made for a reason. You've heard people say, man, I wouldn't do that shit if I was you. Well, here's some of that shit. Carjacking, armed robbery, arson, selling drugs, buying drugs, stabbing, shooting. You know, you probably won't get your ass kicked. 
if you just use common sense. If you jump a subway turnstile, you might just get off with a warning from the police. But if you jump a turnstile carrying a loaded gun and smoking a joint, then maybe you need that kick. We all know what happened to Rodney King. But Rodney wouldn't have gotten his ass kicked if he had just followed this simple tip. When you see flashing police lights in your mirror, stop immediately. Everybody knows, if the police have to come and get you, they're bringing an ass kicking with them. Here's a no-brainer. If you're listening to loud rap music, turn that shit off. While you're getting pulled over by the police, it's just ignorant. When an officer approaches your car, be polite. Is there a problem, officer? And stay in your car with your hands on the wheel. Want to give a friend a ride? Not so fast. Your friend might be crazy. Now, before you let your friend in your car, ask them these questions. Do you have a gun? Do you have drugs? Do you have any warrant? Here's a tip you should never forget. If your woman is mad at you, leave her at home. Because a mad woman will say anything. He got weed! He got weed! If your woman is mad at you, there's nothing she'd like to see more than you getting your ass kicked. Now, let's review Obey the law. Use common sense. Stop immediately. Turn that shit off. Be polite. And last but not least, don't ride with a mad woman. If you follow these simple pointers, you probably won't get your ass kicked by the police. And I got to tell you, I had a hell of a lot of editing to do on that one. Now, one of the things that we've discovered in all these years that I've been doing the radio show, which is almost 26 years, I don't remember, I get these articles of hate crimes, hate crimes, hate crimes. Somebody wrote nasty things inside of this church. Somebody swastiked this side of this church. Somebody punched this, this queer in the eye. And 99% of them were committed by that person. And it's still going on. We find these, these uh, hate crimes that are occurring of, for, against blacks. And it turns out the blacks are the ones doing the hate crime just to get attention. I guess a black student was arrested for setting her dorm on fire and trying to blame it on some white people, which the problem was is everybody was asleep in the dorm. You heard about this cop that had to shoot this one black girl uh, who had a knife who was going towards towards another girl, and he shot her. I don't know what kind of news you heard, but everywhere I'm listening to is another white cop shoots a black person. You know, we have a, a nice old man that comes in here every Thursday morning and he puts the new Nicholsworth. This is the throwaway newspaper. We have a little little basket on as you leave the door, leave the building, uh, go out the front door. It says uh, free. Get your Nicholsworth here. It's a throwaway. People advertise stuff in there. He comes in and he's he's got a mask on. And I I said, you know, you don't need that mask here. He goes, oh, yes, you do. I said, why? I follow the science. I go, what science? He goes, CNN. It seems like people listen to the news. ABC, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, even Fox. They listen to the news, and that is their gospel. So go ahead and listen to this news. Yeah, people just, like, trust me because they see me often. Idiots. Good evening. The world is burning and it's great. Today's fires are fueled by CNN, the White House, LeBron James, Caitlyn Jenner, Gavin Newsom, and not surprisingly, BLM. Stay tuned to be manipulated because I have no soul. 
I'm willing to do it. BLM founders have gone on a multi-million dollar real estate spending spree. The self-professed trained Marxists founded the organization Black Lives Matter with a mission of appearing to care about the black community. One of the founders, Patrice Kahn Cullors, who's a socialist and therefore against capitalism, bought millions of dollars worth of real estate. Funny thing for a socialist to do. One of the homes she bought is in an LA community with less than 2% of a black population. This particular purchase is seen to be very supportive of her commitment to the black community. Patrice... Patrice? Is that how you say your name? Patrice? Is facing intense backlash amongst accusations that she's using donation money from BLM to fund her real estate purchases. Shockingly, she's denied those accusations. She claims she's using her own money to fund her real estate purchases, not BLM donation money. Oddly enough, only capitalists would have millions of dollars laying around. Not socialists. So whether she's lying about not taking donation money or she's lying about being against capitalism, either way, according to us, she's being more honest. In the past year, BLM has leveraged such tragedies as the killing of Breonna Taylor to bring in over $90 million in donations. If that money hasn't gone to the founder's real estate spending spree, then where has it gone? Well, Breonna Taylor's mother had this to say about where the money has not gone. I have never personally dealt with BLM Louisville and personally have found them to be fraud. She went on to say this about BLM. I've watched y'all raise money on behalf of Brianna's family who has never done a damn thing for us. Talk about fraud. Evidence has shown BLM siphoned millions of dollars worth of donations into Joe Biden's campaign. Joe Biden is not black, but does exude virtue signaling to the black community while being objectively racist. BLM has helped black communities around the nation in the past year through rioting and destroying black communities and businesses. The organization is committed to continuing its efforts. This just in! CNN admits to spreading propaganda! Via undercover reporting, Project Veritas has recorded CNN's technical director, Charlie Chester, saying, Our focus was to get Trump out of office. Without saying it, that's what it was. Right? Correct, Charlie, because you just said it. He went on to say that they'll be selling fear around climate change. And with regard to TV ratings around the pandemic, CNN's Chester said, Fear really drives numbers. He also mentioned that CNN pushed a story about Trump having a medical condition with a shaking hand that it, quote, didn't know anything about. And he also admitted the network has made efforts into painting Biden to look young and healthy in order to cover up concerns about his age and potential declining mental faculties. CNN then tried to silence Project Veritas's James O'Keefe by having Twitter ban him from their platform. The thought police strike again. We here at the station believe CNN is 100% innocent of what they admitted to doing. Why? Because CNN has not covered the story which means it must be false. Please be sure to tune into our sister station CNN for the latest in how you should be controlled by fear via climate change propaganda. Soon they'll stop using the term climate change and start using the term climate emergency. Fear sells. Please stay tuned. In presidential news, President Biden accidentally admitted the border crisis is 
a crisis. President Biden, who once fell up the same flight of stairs three times, has still not visited the border. Over a month ago, he took a break from falling up steps to appoint beloved Vice President Kamala Harris to head up the border crisis. And she has also not visited the border. Which means our leaders who created the problems at the border are very invested in solving the problems at the border that they created. LeBron James is accused of inciting violence after he tweeted, You're next! Along with a picture of the Columbus police officer who saved a girl from getting stabbed to death from another girl. And the backlash against King James is completely unfounded because LeBron was looking for racism and therefore that's what he thought he saw. Donald Trump Jr. published the following. Self-proclaimed King James is quick to dox a police officer who saved someone from being stabbed to death with a knife. But he still won't say a word about China's Uyghur genocide. You can call yourself King all you want, but you're really just Z's court jester. He said in referring to Xi Jinping, head of the Chinese Communist Party that is committing the genocide. Little does Don Jr. know that the NBA and LeBron himself have major financial ties to China, and therefore it wouldn't be in LeBron's best financial interest to stand up for what's right. Conservatives are so dumb. An Arizona audit is set to move forward on the 2020 election, and we have no idea why they'd want to do that. After several weeks of Delta leading the woke corporate charge against Georgia's voter ID law, which is racist because it requires people of all races to show an ID before voting, and that's voter suppression, I flew with Delta over the weekend. The verdict? Delta is just as racist as they claim the Georgia voter ID law is. Checking in with Delta, they required me to show my ID, which was not only racist, was passenger suppression because it kept people who weren't me from boarding the plane and taking the seat that was rightfully mine. Once on board, I found that Delta only had white people in their first class cabin. Furthermore, they did not let me fly the plane, even though I identified as the pilot, which was hateful towards me. It's clear that not only is woke Delta not full of hypocrisy, they need to get more woke. Our final story is that Caitlyn Jenner has announced she'll be running for California governor once Gavin Newsom is recalled. Caitlyn, who won the decathlon in the 1976 Olympic Games while pretending to be a man, made her announcement over Twitter. In 2015, Caitlyn Jenner won Glamour's Woman of the Year. And earlier that same year, she was responsible for the death of another person when she slammed her Hummer into the back of their car. Caitlyn will be looking to bring this experience into the governor's office to continue California's momentum moving forward. This just in, the Biden administration is not backing Caitlyn Jenner. Wait a minute. That's not transphobic of them because only the other side is transphobic. Got it. In fact, Caitlyn's running as Republican, so that makes her the transphobic one. That monster? Rather, the White House has publicly supported Newsom, saying, In addition to sharing a commitment to a range of issues with Gavin Newsom, from addressing the climate crisis to getting the pandemic under control, POTUS clearly opposes any effort to recall Gavin Newsom. Newsom is being recalled for creating a disastrous level of homelessness, crime, and having a horrible COVID response. And the White House backing him strongly suggests that they want to turn the rest of the country into what California has become. And they will. Good night.
Those of you in Virginia who have children, you no longer have to worry about them not being equal to whites or or other blacks because uh, Virginia has decided that they're no longer going to be offering the advanced courses in mathematics. In other words, geometry, trigonometry, calculus, that kind of stuff. Because according to Virginia, blacks are too stupid to learn it. So that's why they don't pass those courses because whites are much smarter and it's not fair. So what they're going to do is not going to have the courses anymore because then nobody will have to be tested on them. This is Virginia. This is what happens when you live in a communist country. Now, when I say country, each individual state here is its own country and Virginia is a communist country like California is a communist country, Oregon communist, Washington's communist, you know, that kind of thing. In fact, as far as the, the children in public schools know, anything's racist now. Just quickly, we mentioned how our kids are being terrorized about climate change. They're being terrorized about LGBTIQ issues. They're being terrorized about the color of their skin, if they're white or they're Christian or whatever they are. They're also being terrorized about meat and what they eat. Have a listen to this girl. It's not her fault. She's been brainwashed. Now that black people have overcome slavery, they developed a rich barbecue culture to make up for all the meat eating that they lost out on. So when you go to the store and you buy a piece of meat as a white person, you are actively taking away a piece of meat that could be being enjoyed by a survivor of ancestral slavery. So Rita and James, just think you're putting that barbecue, your Anzac Barbie on today. Oh, no, 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 hold back. It's racist. You know, Here we go. Everything's racist, even the Barbie, Rita. Obviously, I mean... <laughs> That's the the new 2021 mode we're going with. Everything is racist. Absolutely. And what that does is actually cheapen the term where it means nothing. According to the Democrats and all media, all black people are victims because they're too stupid to do anything on their own. So they need uh, the help of their protectors, the communists, the American Communist Party, the ACP. And according to media, all whites are racist. Here is... The first black lieutenant governor having his say about the subject. Thank you, Chairman Cohen and Ranking Member Johnson and all the members of the committee for allowing me to speak today. I'm honored to sit before this committee and testify before this body on such an important topic, topic that hits close to home for me. You see, I'm the first black lieutenant governor of North Carolina, and I hail from Greensboro, home of the Woolworth sit-ins, epicenter of the civil rights movement. I grew up poor as a ninth of ten children in a home marred by alcoholism. But I had a mother who was a strong woman of faith, and she sustained us. She was also a woman who lived through the terribleness of Jim Crow and witnessed firsthand the sacrifices made by those to ensure that black voices would be heard in government. But today I'm not here to talk about myself. I'm here to talk about voter discrimination and election integrity. The subject of this hearing is the evolving landscape of voter discrimination. Today, we hear Georgia law being compared to Jim Crow. The black voices are being silenced. And the black voices are being kept out. How? By bullets? By bombs? By nooses? No. By requiring a free ID to secure the vote. Let me say that again. By requiring a free ID to secure the vote. How absolutely preposterous. Am I to believe that black Americans who have overcome the atrocities of slavery, who were victorious in the civil rights movement, and now sit in the highest levels of this government, cannot figure out how to get a free ID to secure their votes, that they need to be coddled by politicians because they don't think we can figure out how to make our voices heard. Are you kidding me? 
The notion that black people must be protected from a free ID to secure their votes is not just insane. It is insulting. It doesn't have anything to do with justice. This has everything to do with power. The goal of some individuals in government is not to hear the voices of black Americans at all. It's to hear the voices that fit their narratives. And that is the whole goal of the American Communist Party, the Democrats. They need to have as many victims as possible and to have these victims see them as their saviors. This is why the blacks have never left the plantation. They were placed from the dirt plantation to a concrete plantation and left there and still under the control of the American Communist Party. And they're going to stay under control because even in the school system where they could be taught, but they're not being taught reality in the school system. Whites or blacks are not being taught reality. In a school system in the United States, blacks are being taught that they're victims and that all white people are racist and that blacks can never do anything wrong. I mean, we can go on and on and on with this. I have a clip here from Glenn Beck where he talks about this critical race theory. Critical race theory is a theory that whites are genetically racist and blacks can never be racist because they're not whites. And everything that's ever been done wrong or bad or the reason why you can't achieve anything if you're a person of color is because of the white man. Killed at the gold spa behind me. Police say it's too soon to tell whether victims were targeted because of their race. But the killer said himself that it wasn't about race. And yet, people are calling for new laws to protect Asian Americans. Surge in hate crimes against Asian Americans only getting worse. It's like it's open season on people who look like me, who look like my parents. Attacks against Asian Americans have reached a crisis point. All of this is thanks to critical race theory, an ideology that puts race above all else. Your values, your skills and talents, your dreams, desires, they're all wiped out and put in place instead is the new defining aspect of your life, your skin color. I know it started at the nation's universities. That's the breeding ground for far left ideologues. But it's now spreading not only to our young kids. Other people of color experience other forms of racism too. But you won't see any of that if you don't see color. But into every aspect of our society as well. It's a manipulated attempt to control you. But fight it, and they will take you down. You feel helpless. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. So tonight, we study the threat. We identify it and watch how it spreads. Critical race theory is making its way into our after-school programs. Then, what we can do to put it in its place. Tonight, critical race tyranny. The Great Reset of Education. Hello, America, and welcome to the program. Probably the most important thing that we can do is take care of our children. Our children are under attack. The entire house is truly on fire. And we keep saying, look at this fire, look at this fire, look at this fire. But our children are trapped inside, as you will understand. There is nothing more important than our children. We are at a precarious position in our nation right now. There are many cultural threats ripping at the fabric of America. But I believe the most dangerous 
dangerous existential uh, threat to the United States is happening in your own family. It's critical race theory, often referred to as CRT. Let me just recap real quick in case you don't know what critical race theory is. It is an ideology flooding the universities, now our public schools, all the way down to kindergarten which elevates race as the most important aspect of a person's identity. Take everything you learn from Martin Luther King and flip it on top of its head, and you have critical race theory. It preaches racial oppression as the singular ruling factor that explains everything about American history and Western society. It teaches that white supremacy is essentially like, I don't know, the force in Star Wars. Whiteness surrounds us. It penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together, except it's not a good force. And according to CRT, it divides the nation into two groups. You're either racist and part of the problem, or you are an anti-racist fighting to reverse this power structure. But so you know, the only way to truly reverse it is to destroy everything that has been built. Now, when I say critical race theory is an existential threat to America, it is because it is victim-based philosophy. It's a divisive message that is completely un-American and I think anti-people, anti-soul, anti-individual. It will destroy every aspiration and hope in our children. CRT is gaining momentum and it is being preached now in schools all across the U.S. If you believe this is not in your school system, you are wrong. I don't care where you are. And the consequences for daring to disagree with CRT include being branded a racist, getting kicked out of the public square, even seeing your livelihood ruined. Is there anything more important than your children? Now, it may not be a Soviet-style gulag yet, but the punishment for dissent of its own kind has its own special exile for you. So social justice simply creates more injustice. It all has a very Marxist ring to it, and that's not a coincidence, as you'll see in a moment. By the time we finish tonight, you will see, oh, wait a minute, there's something even more disturbing that is joining hands with this, and it's Islamicism. Now, when critical race theory takes over as the truth that explains everything in life, it is truly like a religion. It leads to op-eds like this one just a few weeks ago after the mass shooting in Atlanta. Whiteness is a pandemic. Now, this writer of the piece, Damon Young, says, listen to this. Whiteness is a public health crisis. It shortens life expectancies. It pollutes air. It constricts equilibrium. It devastates forests. It melts ice caps. It sparks and funds wars. It flattens dialects. It infests consciousness. And it kills people. Now, how can whiteness do that? Because that's critical race theory. It's not whiteness. They define whiteness as everything that you would associate with the, well, I was going to say Western way of life, but it's common sense. Being a person of merit is described as whiteness. Being on time is whiteness. Striving to be better is whiteness. It's extremely racist, but it is also extremely devastating to anyone who adopts this theory. CRT is a direct descendant of critical theory, which was born where all really bad ideas are born in Germany in the 1920s. 
It was known as the Frankfurt School. Now, the Frankfurt School is its original name was going to be the Institute for Marxism. Now, remember what was brewing in uh, Germany. Marxism, socialism, national socialism, Nazism, and all of the ideas that one race could wipe the other race out. This is part of all of that. But the school's founders, uh, you know, after the war, they were like, you know, maybe we should camouflage some of the Marxist roots here, you know, uh, go for a safer sounding name. And what could be safer than the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt? Critical theory held that there are no universal truths from the start. It was all about talking uh, uh, about and attacking Western culture and institutions to destroy them. Remember, Marxism, it's communism or national socialism back in the time, and it was all about destroying the Western way of life. They don't believe that man can rule himself. In the 1930s, when the Nazis came to power in Germany, the Frankfurt School's critical theory professors escaped because they were not national socialists. They were communists. Where did they go? Well, they came to New York and they went to Columbia University, which welcomed them in. One of those Marxist professors, a guy named Herbert Marcuse, grew frustrated with the American working class because they're not agitated enough. I mean, what's wrong with them? They seem to be happy. He felt that they had been duped into believing capitalism and the American dream was a good thing, but it was actually enslaving. This is the Marxist concept of masters dominating slaves, the bourgeoisie exploiting the proletariat. Now, according to Marx, that situation was not sustainable. In the long run, it's the working class are going to revolt against their masters. But that didn't work. And after the civil rights and Vietnam protest movements, Marcuse discovered a whole new market of minorities to exploit by focusing on their oppression. There is always somebody that can see something real and turn it into something hideous and evil. This was the seed of the critical race theory. He saw what Malcolm X was preaching, not Martin Luther King. And he realized if we can get this into the university and let it uh, germinate for several decades, we could grow something that would kill this system. Well, CRT uses that Marxist formula, except now white people are the bourgeoisie dominating and exploiting the people of color who are now the proletariat. Whites, you see, have all of the power. People of color have none. So CRT is all about flipping that narrative. So now it's anti-racism. It's a version of Marxism, working class result or revolt. You've got to rise up against white culture and white people. It's not about creating a more equal society because Marx never does that. It's all about transferring power from white oppressors to oppress people of color. But even that doesn't matter. There are white people involved in this and black people involved, and it doesn't matter. It's all about power and money for whomever can get the job done. Last year, George Floyd's death and the resulting BLM riots caused critical race theory to escape the labs of academia and super spread through the culture almost overnight. Suddenly, the media, pro sports, corporations, all on board with the idea that America is hopefully uh, hopelessly racist and thereby everything, including capitalism, must be dismantled and destroyed. 
CRT has gone mainstream, and the all-encompassing anti-racism movement has created an atmosphere of guilt and fear that Columbia professor John McWhorter calls a, quote, totalitarian and unnecessary kind of cultural reprogramming. This reprogramming can be seen in things like this educational program on whiteness from the National Museum for African American History. In recent months, the whiteness pandemic has caused panic on college campuses all over the U.S. At Princeton, hundreds of faculty members sent a letter to the university president endorsing critical race theory. Their letters declare, quote, anti-blackness is foundational to America. And it includes a long list of demands on how to make Princeton an anti-racist institution. It kills me. The institution that is most closely associated with the biggest racist in American history, Woodrow Wilson. Tufts University in Massachusetts announced that it will spend $25 million to become an anti-racist campus because all it really takes is money, right? This effort includes replacing art displays with more racially diverse content. Apparently, artists are frontline workers in the whiteness pandemic. Earlier this month, a former law professor released the Whitest Law Schools in America report. It says, quote, the higher the score, the more inappropriately white the school. Can you even imagine this being said that it is an inappropriately black school? The deans at Case Western University Law School in Ohio were not pleased with their ranking in that report, so they emailed the student body chastising them for being too white just a few weeks ago. uh, Is it Barrera College in Kentucky held an event titled White Citizenship as Terrorism? At the University of Maryland, black student leaders submitted a list of demands, including, get this, Putting notations on the transcripts of students accused of hate speech. Accused. They also demanded mandatory racial bias training for students and staff and, of course, defunding the campus police. Stanford University launched the Youth Justice Lab to examine how to dismantle structural racism in the U.S. public school system and put an anti-racist education in its place. They claim things like merit-based grading policies are insidious forms of state-sponsored racial segregation. The University of Washington announced it is launching a center for anti-racism in nursing focused on addressing systematic racism in healthcare. Because the number one problem facing American healthcare is racism. You heard it at the beginning of the, se- uh, the segment. Whiteness kills people. Well, thanks to critical race theory, healthcare isn't the only thing we now know is racist. Math is as well. The Mathematical Science Research Institute in Berkeley, California, is presenting a workshop for college professors this summer called Mathematics and Racial Justice. Example of CRT madness like this occur almost daily everywhere in this country. At this point, you'd expect from the university system nothing but this. And it's easy to laugh it off as a crackpot scheme that remained behind the ivy walls of college campuses. But with CRT, academia created a monster. And that monster is now stomping down Main Street, USA, like Godzilla, focused on the next conquest, your children's school. Many public school systems across the nation are buying into critical race theory. um, And CRT is targeting schools. 
besides the obvious that CRT's proponents want America's kids indoctrinated with the CRT worldview, there is this reasoning from former education professor Gloria Ladston Billings. She writes, critical race theory sees the official school curriculum as a culturally specific artifact designed to maintain a white supremacist master script. So under the assumption that everything is racist, state boards of education are getting serious about overhauling curriculums and reprogramming their teachers. Last fall, Ohio's educational department created a resource for social studies teachers, and they called it Anti-Racist Allyship Starter Pack. It contained dozens of recommended readings, including an article called The Souls of White Folk. Its author says whiteness is a stone idol in the mind of white people in America that must be smashed into pieces like the idols of pre-Islamic Arabia. Unless this happens, there is no absolution possible, end quote. Other items on the recommended reading list for your children, how white women's tears threaten black existence. When feminism is white supremacy and heals, white people have no culture. And forget looting, capitalism is the real robbery. Earlier this month in Illinois, uh, Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a bill that established a 22-person inclusive American History Commission that will evaluate the current social studies curriculum, quote, through the lens of equity and social justice. The commission is tasked with uh, ensuring the inclusion of non-dominant cultural narratives. The bill also requires the schools to develop a curriculum focused on black history from 3000 BCE to 1619, including the study of reasons black people were enslaved. Then there's this little note from the Oregon Department of Education, 82-page guide to dismantling racism in math, which tells teachers that asking students to show their work in math class is a form of white supremacy. Bet you didn't know that. Or this, quote, white supremacy culture infiltrates math classrooms and everyday teacher actions. So Oregon instructs its math teachers to, quote, identify and challenge the ways that math is used to uphold capitalist, imperialist and racist views. Great. American students already suck at math compared to the rest of the developed world. I'm sure we're going to get real good. Now they're going to be suckier at it, if that were a word, while we try to fix the uh, out of control racism in math. But don't worry. California has been hard at work for the past few years developing the model curriculum for the nation. This is not going to stay in California, nor has it. It is a new ethnic studies requirement that will be the only education a student needs in his new America that runs on critical race theory. California's ethnic studies curriculum has multiple radical contributors who are dedicated to the decades old movement known as liberated ethnic studies. Advocates of this movement say there's more than just a different way of teaching American history. It's a philosophy described as narrative medicine, radical healing, and a way of life. One of the writers of the ethnic studies curriculum is Guadalupe Cardona. 
She is an L.A. public school intervention counselor who was fired from a teaching position in 2018 after the parents found out she's a proud member of a Marxist organization called Union Del Barrio. According to the group's manifesto, they are devoted to expelling European imperialists from the Western Hemisphere. They want to form a single geopolitical unit called Nuestra America, from the southern tip of South America to Alaska. Ultimately, quoting, advancing uh, Simon uh, Bolivier's uh, dream of a unified continent. In an earlier draft of the new ethnic studies curriculum, these activists included a lesson on Palestinian resistance to the oppressive state of Israel as an example of ethnic studies in action. When that lesson was removed from a later draft of the curriculum and a lesser on anti-Semitism or a lesson on anti-Semitism was added, Cardona and others complained that whiteness and Zionism were flexing their power. For over a year, the liberated ethnic studies activists have hosted webinars sharing their radical views of what ethnic studies should look like in California schools. This is California University professor Stevie Ruiz during one of those webinars. Watch. Inside of the United States, Native people have been actively fighting a long war to dismantle the United States. So then we can actually think about, well, what happens if we honor Native people's acknowledgments and begin to tear apart the United States internally? What if we decide to call this place the United States no longer? All the the horrific that white people have been doing to us has now begun to haunt them. And so because they've been experimenting on us for 500 years, it's no longer something you can contain anymore. Tear apart the United States internally. That might as well be the title of this new curriculum. The original co-chair of the committee designing the ethnic studies program argues that white Christians committed theocide against native tribes in America that killed their gods and replaced them with Christianity. As a way to reverse that oppression, the ethnic studies curriculum includes a community chant for their teachers to lead in their classes. Students clap and chant to five, I'm not making this up, five Aztec gods, which were traditionally worshipped with hundreds of thousands of sacrificed humans. The student chant words in various languages, asking the gods for power to be warriors, for social justice, for a revolutionary spirit, and for liberation, transformation, and decolonization. Are we insane? The critical race theory mania is sweeping the nation. It is McCarthyism on steroids. Instead of searching for communism under every rock, it's now whiteness. And we are calling on ancient Aztec gods. May God protect America. And I'm not sure we deserve it much longer, if we even deserve it now. The largest school district in Maryland is spending $455,000 to hire a consulting firm to perform a top-to-bottom anti-racist audit of the school system. In Ohio, the State Board of Education passed a resolution to, quote, require training for all state employees and contractors working with the Department of Education to identify their own implicit biases. Notice their use of the word implicit. There's no benefit of the doubt here. There is simply an assumption of racist white guilt, and that is rushing to us. A herd of buffalo 
And we are walking down a dangerous path that leads to the same places that it led in the 1930s. In February, the Naperville School District outside of Chicago held an anti-racist training for their teachers and staff that featured CRT activist Dennis Simmons. One of the whistleblowers reached out to the Federalist with complaints about Simmons' instruction, including that Simmons told the teachers, quote, our education is based on a foundation of whiteness and that if you are not an anti-racist, you are a racist, even if you think you are treating people with respect. Simmons did not allow video recording of her session, but there are some of her comments from the panel that she was on last year on tape. Watch. What hasn't changed is the mentality of slavery, right? We see it show up in how um, we are expected to be superheroes and heroines, super people. But it's the insidious ways where you kind of have an experience multiple deaths daily just by showing up authentically as your black self. You know, and it's crazy that the emotional labor that black folks, especially in white spaces, got to engage in um, just to ask yourself, am I safe to be black here? Right. And then I got to put on this show and I got to perform. That kills me because the holding it in is work, is laborious, it's killing us. If the educator has not done the work, if the school is seeped in white supremacy, then guess what that I can't take any more. Really? So the way to cure that is to make half of the country now feel the same way and to inflict that on them? That's why this is evil. Based on those comments, it seems entirely possible that the whistleblower has some valid concerns. The Naperville anti-racism training also featured a helpful slide with the examples of overt white supremacy and covert white supremacy. According to this, the phrase, make America great again, is covert white supremacy, just below using the N-word or being in the Klan on the pyramid. Also, if you deny the overall concept of white privilege, that makes you a racist. Of course, Illinois is not the only state going the extra mile to find racism everywhere. Arizona's education department released an equity toolkit for its teachers with a super helpful reveal that racism can develop in babies as young as three months old. Racist math, racist babies. How did we not know this before? Well, they cited a study that it says, at birth, babies look equally at the faces of all races. At three months, babies look more at faces that match the race of their caregivers. Racism and hatred. The real test will be to find out if babies are racist in the womb. Oh, wait a minute. I forgot. Those aren't real babies. Those are just cell blobs. So what am I talking about? Critical race theory. The activists are descending on America's schools with a vengeance. And the consequences of resisting can be severe. But you must. We go there next. The hierarchy of structures in organizations, who gets paid and who has the power to say this, that's all capitalism. And honestly, to me, that's whiteness. And we have to eradicate whiteness. We have to abolish whiteness as well. Wow. Abolish whiteness. That sounds a little racist. But what do I know? That is critical race theory activist Dina Simmons equating the evils of whiteness with capitalism. This is one of the broader dangers of CRT and why it's kind of a problem that is flooding into our schools. The CRT movement is very anti-capitalist, which is no surprise considering it's a Marxist philosophy. The two most famous CRT shills right now, Robert uh, Robin DiAngelo, who I mentioned earlier, and Ibram X. Kendi, the author of 
How to Be an Anti-Racist and Anti-Racist Baby. In an interview, D'Angelo told the New York Times, quote, capitalism is so bound up with racism, capitalism is dependent on inequality and on an underclass. In his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Kendi says, quote, to love capitalism is to end up loving racism. Capitalism is essentially racist. Racism is essentially capitalist. They were birthed together from the same unnatural causes, and they shall one day die together from unnatural causes. People like Kendi, D'Angelo, Dina Simmons are against capitalism because it's so racist, and yet somehow or another they manage to be for the part of capitalism that allows them to command $20,000 in speaking fees from your school district. Amazing how it works. I mean, I would think that Karl Marx, if he were an American, he'd be a millionaire. Not surprising, the World Economic Forum, remember the gurus behind the Great Reset, are on board with critical race theory, tearing down capitalism. From their own words, quote, systematic racism continues to burden the United States and black Americans have borne the brunt of this legacy. Wealth now needs to be more broadly distributed as socialists have long called for. Capitalism as we know it needs to be reformed. Capitalism is the dominant economic system since the end of World War two has played a substantial part in fueling inequalities within and across nations capitalism and socialism will need to merge to create a productive and inclusive economic and social model more socialism it fixes everything it always does more socialism equals less discrimination don't believe me ask the uyghurs in china Now, the stakes are getting higher and higher for daring to speak out against critical race tyranny. Mentioned earlier, CRT is a new kind of McCarthyism. Journalist Barry Weiss, who is a progressive who had to leave the New York Times because she couldn't take it anymore, recently interviewed a number of parents who have kids at an elite private school all around the country. They expressed their fear of opposing CRT in their schools. One mother in Los Angeles said, quote, the schools can ask you to leave for any reason and then you'll be blacklisted from all of the private schools and you'll be known as a racist, which is worse than being called a murderer. A student in New York City told Weiss, if you publish my name, it will ruin my life. People will attack me for even questioning this ideology. I don't want people even knowing I'm a capitalist. Then there's this, members of a Facebook group called Anti-Racist Parents of Loudoun County in Virginia sought to expose people in the local community who are suspected of disagreeing with changes in school policies and curriculum related to CRT. The Anti-Racist Facebook group organized to, quote, compile a document of all known actors and supporters and expose these people publicly. They put together a list of their suspects' home addresses, spouse names, social media accounts, and their employers. They also discuss creating fake online profiles to infiltrate groups like Parents Against Critical Theory and finding hackers to shut down their websites. A Republican political action committee called the Virginia Project is now working on legal action against members of this Facebook mob spearheading spearheading this, uh, this blacklist. In Las Vegas, a high school senior named William Clark, who happens to be mixed race, this is coming for your kids. He received a failing grade in a critical race theory class for refusing to confess his white dominance as part of the class assignment. The year-long class called Sociology of Change is mandatory for graduation. Here's his mom, Gabrielle. They were asking my son to reveal identities that are protected. 
you can't do that at a job. You shouldn't be able to do it at a school. It's it, it, so, it put a target on my son's back. If somebody didn't like what he had to say, then that would have put him in danger. As part of the class, students were asked to reveal their races, gender, religious, and sexual identities, and then assign derogatory labels. According to the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, which is helping the Clarks bring a lawsuit against the school, students were asked to, quote, undo and unlearn their beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors that stem from oppression, end quote. William received a failing grade for refusing to label himself as privileged or an oppressor. William is mixed race, but is the only student in the class with lighter skin. The Clarks are suing on the grounds that the school violated William's First Amendment rights by, quote, repeatedly compelling his speech involving intimate matters of race, gender, sexuality, and religion, end quote. The Clarks' lawsuit could end up being a landmark case against critical race theory in school curriculums, and it's going to take a lot more of that kind of resistance to withstand the CRT tidal wave. There are dangers uh, posed by critical race theory. When people believe this doctrine, when the next generation of children are forced in our schools to accept it as truth, rather than the theory that you have taught, it will open Pandora's box of potential abuses. When you believe racism is the only thing that drives society and culture, then the Inquisition and the drive for systematic change never ends. History is littered with horrific examples of what happens when nations do ideological purges. It never ends well. Critical race theory is divorced from all reality. It's divorced from unity. It's divorced from the principles that have given America a fighting chance to allow the most freedom and opportunity of any nation on earth. Remember, this has nothing to do with you, has nothing to do with right or wrong. This is all designed to tear us apart and to destroy the Western culture. Azra Nomani is a name that you should know. She's the Vice President for Strategy and Investigations at Parents Defending Education. She's an author, a former Wall Street Journal reporter, a former Georgetown journalism professor, among many other things that are on this amazing resume. She first came to my attention as the co-founder of the Muslim Reform Movement and co-director of the Pearl Project, which investigated the 2002 murder of the Wall Street Journal colleague Daniel Pearl. It happened in Pakistan. She is an expert on Islamicism, Islamic extremism, terrorism, and countering radicalization. Whether she is taking on radical Islam or now recently critical race theory in education, she has always been a courageous fighter for truth and for dignity and human freedom. Welcome, Azra. How are you? Oh, thank you so much, Glenn. I can't believe that we're here together in this fight today, but everything that we've been doing for the past 20 years is connected to this moment. So let's let's begin there, because you have fought and I mean fought hard and tried to reform uh, Islam to get it away from the Islamicists. And I feel as though this critical race theory is the same kind of feeling of that you get from the Islamicists. They use all kinds of uh, distracting tactics to get you off, of course, to call you names, to uh, shut other viewpoints down. And it is truly indoctrination. Islamism is 
a way of thinking. And for anyone who doesn't know, it's an idea that Islam needs to be part of governance, that it needs to define mm-hmm. all of society. And so mm-hmm. this new ideology that's called critical race theory that, it, you know, folks um, shortcut as wokeism is another breed of indoctrination that wants to seep into every part of our society and ultimately hijack our minds. And what I am just so disturbed by is the parallels between these two movements and also their intersection. They work together. And, you know, you and I have been on the chopping block of the Islamists for 20 years. What I have come to understand is that they have exploited this idea of critical race theory that wants to racialize every issue in society. And that is why, Glenn, you end up being called an Islamophobe and a racist. And I am also, as a Muslim woman, called an Islamophobe and a racist by those radical Muslims that we oppose because they found this beautiful Trojan horse called critical race theory to basically hide all of their really illiberal ideas and dangerous ideas in society. Very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Every time, every time we talk about Islamic extremism, then they want to call us anti-Muslim and racist. But what they have done is simply use this tactic now that the left that is trying to call everybody a racist. I feel as though people are frustrated. They may know the problem. They will be either ridiculed or dismissed if they go to the school and try to say something. They don't know where to start. And they also feel a little overwhelmed, like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. And that's not true. You were telling me before we went on the air, just today you were on a phone call where big progress was made in Chicago. In about a minute, can you kind of highlight this truth? Yes, absolutely. You know, so I helped to start an organization over the last month called Parents Defending Education. And we are parents who are saying that you have to fight back and be unapologetic in your belief in the values of America. And so these organizations are coming up across the country and we're putting them on a map that we're calling indoctrination. And in this map, we're also documenting district by district, these incidents of indoctrination that's happening to our children. And so I invite everyone to go to defendinged.org and send us your incident, send us your parent group, send us any request that you have for help, because we're here to now support all of the parents around the country who want to fight back. And in Chicago, there was just a big win. And I don't know if you're prepared to talk about it again. We've got 90 seconds left. But there was a big win. And you're taking that and going to use that as a a template for other schools. Yeah, so we just got off, you know, talking to parents in Nutrier, Illinois, and there they have successfully put forward a resolution that the school board has passed in which they are asserting the right to critical thinking and open discourse, kind of like the University of Chicago put forward some Mm -hmm. years ago. 
And so there are really amazing templates that we have in school districts. Another one in Texas has gotten the school board to say that they are not going to accept critical race theory in their schools. So we're going to take these models and try to scale them across the country and bring them to your schools and every school district around the country so that we can protect our children. In the end, your children are the only thing that matters. If we lose our children, and I'm telling you now, the way this is being set up, you will have your children turn on you by the time they're in third grade. This is one of the reasons why I tell everyone who has children in public school that you should be ashamed of yourself. Don't be guilt-ridden. Get them the hell out of the public school. This is not a school. None of these places are schools. They're indoctrination centers. And to achieve what the one world government wants, they have to destroy not just the white man, but the concept of the whites. They have to destroy the concepts. And that's what they're doing. That's not the worst part. They're not just coming, that's it. You can't go, well, you know what, this critical race theory, that's it. That's that's their attack. Let's just defeat that. But there's something else on the horizon. And it's been here for quite a while. It's called the 1619 Project. This is from Wikipedia. This project aims to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the United States national narrative. In other words... What they want to do, they claim 1619 was the first time that a black slave showed up in the United States. Okay? It's a real simple thing. This thing, this project, quote unquote, has been in the public school system now for years. And they they, they actually say that the reason we had the revolution in the United States is because uh, we wanted to keep slaves and the British didn't. That's that's This is what they teach. This is the kind of confusing crap that's being taught in our public schools. This is the 1619 Project. They're very good at phrasing the uh, concepts and at talking to you about it. But basically, again, it's it's the, uh, the whole concept is the United States wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for slavery. The white man was just too lazy to do any of his own work. So that's why that's why the white man went and got the uh, the slaves and 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 uh, put them all through the south and all through the all everywhere in the United States and it's the black man is what built the the United States economy and the white people just sat back drinking a mint juleps and and uh, whipping anyone who was black. This is the thing that you're going to find. You're going to see this. And you're going to find out that these people are every single one of them are insane liberals. They are psychopaths. They literally want the full destruction of the United States and the crushing, crushing of anybody who's not black. And this is done psychologically and physically. There's way more to this than than meets the eye. And there's way more to it than I have time or willingness or inclination to uh, go into. But this is a warning to everyone out there. This is a warning to all the people who are white. You're being attacked. I don't care if you're liberal or not. If you're white, you're being attacked. Everywhere you look, you're being attacked. In the churches, you're being attacked. In the schools, in our federal government, you're being attacked. In the state, in the city government, you're being attacked. And right now, it goes anywhere from verbal to uh, economic, and it's going. It's into the physical stage right now. You know, all of these so-called hate crimes that you hear about of Asians, these Asian hate crimes... Every single one of them, every single one of them has been perpetrated by a black man or a black woman. Every single one. And I talked to you last week about the uh, knockout game. That's real. And there's more reports coming out, especially out of the big inner cities that are ruled by the American Communist Party. And all you black people out there, you're creating 
a future for yourself that you're not going to want, but you're allowing it to be created. You're allowing yourselves to be molded into a race of hate mongers and dangerous people. You're going to create something that you don't want. And you liberals out there, did you listen to me say 1.2 million people, first-time gun buyers, 1.2 million. You understand, I use the term first-time gun buyers. So they didn't count the people who were buying guns again. Just the first-time buyers. There are over 2 million firearms sold monthly in the United States from one person to another. Over 2 million. Do some multiplication and you'll figure that out. You're setting yourselves up for a bad, bad future. Okay, this is the Armchair Survivalist. Enough. I've had enough. So I'm heading out. Remember, survivalenterprises.com, se1.us. 310-295-9686. Give us a call. Ham radios, shortwave radios, and the mountain house buckets of food. So keep your nose in the air and your ear to the ground. And I'll see you next week.